Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on August 9th, 2018. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. Now, some of you may have noticed that Twill has been on something of a hiatus this summer. I'm afraid other projects have intruded. However, going forward, I will try and put out new episodes as newsworthy issues arise and as time allows. This episode, indeed this and the three and that will follow, recorded at the 2018 SEALS conference. I was lucky enough to participate in some great sessions, compare notes with some of my favorite health law professors. Frankly, I forget whose idea it was, but four of us came together as a panel to discuss healthcare in the era of the Trump administration. I was joined by Nicole Huberfell, Professor of Health Law, Ethics and Human Rights, Health Law, Policy and Management at Boston University School of Public Health, Zach Bach, Assistant Professor of Law and Wilkinson Jr., Research Professor at the University of Tennessee, and Jennifer Barr, Professor of Law in the College of Law at the University of Cincinnati, with a joint appointment in the Department of Internal Medicine at the College of Medicine there. She's currently a visiting scholar at the O'Neill Institute for Local and Global Health Law at Georgetown University Law. Center. Now, this was a panel, not a typical studio recording, uh, so uh, to get the most out of it, you may wish to download our slides, the linked at twill.com. In this first part, you'll have to suffer my presentation, in which I examine the impact of the administration on the regulation of private health insurance, particularly on the coverages sold on the exchange marketplaces. I'm going to start by trying to do a sort of year in, in health law in 22 and a half minutes. Uh, I, I start, of course, just over a year ago. Uh, this is July 28, 2017, about 1.29 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, where John McCain uh, casts the deciding negative vote. So where exactly are we as we sort of start the uh, look at the year? According to Jonathan Oberlander, a new piece in NEJM, ACA is stuck in purgatory beyond conservative repeal but subject to a war of attrition that jeopardizes its gains. And I think that's a pretty accurate statement, although you do have to sort of counter it with uh, looking at the state and federal exchange enrollments which are remarkably stable. And there's a new report out from McKinsey this week talking about both customer satisfaction, customer stability, even the beginning of loyalty between exchange customers and particular insurers. Uh, so uh, to an extent, that's probably the extraordinary story of the year that that is the case. Now, I'm uh, going to be talking about a very narrow segment here because mostly I'm going to be talking about uh, individual market issues. But there are ripples to be considered across all types of insurance. Uh, maybe Trump Care has had little impact so far on employer group, the contraceptive mandate being an obvious exception. Uh, however, both the risk and ASO groups continue their slow percentage decline in membership, uh, likely because of the gig economy, and so more people are going to flip out a group into a large group, into small or individual. And association plans that I'll talk about a little bit later uh, shift some, some new persons into uh, the unregulated parts of the group insurance, which I think is an interesting wrinkle. And also, employer group has its own crisis. 
because of increased cost shifting and the growing ranks of the underinsured. And Nicole and I were talking last night about what is finally going to be the trigger that moves us towards a single-payer universal care model. And I think it's when that employer group underinsurance issue becomes crucial slash fatal. But I should be retired by then, so that's okay. <laughs> so into Trump care. And let's be careful here. I need to be careful here. Uh, you need to adopt your own ideological frame. Is this sabotage, as some would argue, or is this improvement in choice, as others would argue? And uh, I will try and stay clear of definitively coming down on one side or another. Uh, but I would note that at least the cities of Baltimore, Chicago, Cincinnati, and Columbus, Ohio, uh, would tend to say that it's sabotage, uh, given that they have just filed suit against the uh, administration for, quote, waging a relentless campaign to sabotage and ultimately to nullify the law. And Abby Gluck certainly thinks that they've got a decent case, if you've read her piece in Vox that just came out. So uh, what's happened with regard to Trump care, its impact on private insurance? And I think if you, I'll, I'll start at the bottom of the page because I'm not going to spend much time talking about it because it would be incredibly speculative. We are seeing some data coming out, data coming out on this, but there are clearly some process impediments to exchange marketing, to exchange signups and so on uh, that look like they will depress the marketplaces somewhat. So you've got reduced marketing, uh, deprecation of outreach, reduced payments for navigators, and of course my favorite, the Sunday maintenance during the enrollment period that the website needs, apparently. Uh, 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 they, they have to get a new hamster to, to, to install, and so it, it runs the thing. But So leaving that aside, let me concentrate on the top three bullets. Um, first of all, I think what we've seen Trump care particularly over the last year, is a pretty strong attempt to saw the legs off the three-legged stool. Uh, second, deprecation of market stabilization tools. And third, the beginning of destabilization of risk pools and sort of chipping away at, at um, essential health benefits, is at least the way I read it. So uh, our three-legged stool, of course, guaranteed issue plus individual mandate plus subsidies is what we need in order to have something stable that we can sit on. And it's clear that we are taking a, a saw to some of those legs. During repeal and replace, it appears, I think, both politically and uh, both in, in the Senate and also in the general population, I think pre-existing condition denials became a sort of line in the sand, which I think has been somewhat established, but there doesn't seem to be nearly the same love for the other legs of the stool. So it will soon be a mono stool or whatever that would be. <laughs> so the first a big chop, of course, is the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, December 2017, which doesn't eliminate the individual mandate. It merely reduces the penalty to zero, and more on that later. And so that'll be gone in 2019. Now, Texas and other GOP-led states now argue that because of that, the whole of the ACA is unconstitutional. And what they're trying to do is leverage part of Chief Judge Roberts' arguments in NFIB uh, in that because it was a tax, it lives. Well, as soon as there's no tax, it dies. Um, this, this is a non-constitutional lawyer's version of what's going on in, in, in the uh, Texas and U.S. case. The country is 
is left with an individual mandate to buy health insurance that lacks any constitutional basis. Of course, the big news about this was that justice didn't defend the ACA. And uh, that itself caused a major storm with uh, career uh, justice folks leaving and uh, 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 Tweetland going up in smoke. Major medical groups and um, patient advocacy organizations have filed as a MECI. Exactly where we are is difficult to tell because it was originally it looked like we were we were going for a preliminary injunction or they were going for a preliminary injunction but it's now being briefed up for potential summary judgment disposition uh, so that one could be the beginning of a very long thing or it could get slightly accelerated a little unknown at the time next subsidies so the uh, house versus price if you recall in 2014 challenged the constitutionality of federal pr- subsidies to insurance companies and in october 12 2017 um, quote based on guidance from the doj the trump administration decided that they were no longer going to pay um, csrs uh, the president tweeting out at that moment the democrats obama care is imploding. The massive subsidy payments to their pet insurance companies has stopped. Dems should call me to fix. The early estimates from CBO were that terminating those CSR payments would increase premiums by 20%, increase the federal deficit on net by $194 billion. So it doesn't look a great business decision. In fact, it's kind of cool because as CSR ends, silver loading begins. And so what happens is that uh, tax credits increase in value along with the price of the silver plan. Uh, Once, if you qualify for the tax credit, then you're always, your payment is always limited to a dollar figure, essentially. Um, So what the insurers did, uh, who are still bound by the law, even though they're not getting the subsidy payments, which is why you would expect the premiums to go up so much, what they did was they loaded all of the premium increases, or nearly all of their premium increases, into silver plans, hence silver loading. This means that the tax credits go up and essentially negate the absence of the cost-sharing subsidies. It's not quite that uh, easy. I mean, at some point, uh, Azar actually said that he would allow silver loading to continue this year. I've got a feeling that's not going to go on forever. But um, some of the knock-on features, of course, is that because of the premium increases, silver silver plans now are probably out of reach for anyone over 400 FPL. So that's an effect. And it's it's going to take, be interesting to see exactly what the take-up on the bronze and golds look like uh, going into next year. So it's a little early on that. Next, the three R's, uh, as you all know and love talking about your students, the three market stabilization programs in the ACA. We have risk adjustment, uh, we have reinsurance, and we have risk corridors. But, oh, my, I was using the wrong tense there, wasn't I? First to risk adjustment... That is the sound of whiplash. Um, If you recall that just a few weeks ago, uh, we were told that risk adjustment was over because a single federal district court, even though other federal district courts had disagreed, had decided that um, it was a a really bad plan and it couldn't operate as it was. Therefore, risk adjustment was cancelled and Twitter lit up again, only for just a couple of, uh, I think, two weeks later, for there to be um, the adoption of the methodology for HH-operated permanent risk adjustment programs 
And so we were back again. So we lost risk adjustment for a couple of weeks, but now it's back. And, and welcome. I, I assume it was something to do with the heat in D.C. at this time of the year, but uh, we'll have to wait for the book, won't we? Uh, reinsurance, not so pretty. It was always a transitional program, reinsurance. It was always going to, uh, to leave us in 2016. Um, the Murray Alexander plan, as you know, was poised to try and paper over that. Um, but at that point, uh, the graham Casty repeal bill is introduced, which leads to the first slide in McCain. And so we never really got to see uh, anything positive coming out of the Murray Alexander plan, although there are, there's always little murmurs that uh, GOPers are interested. Risk corridors were killed by the Federal Circuit, uh, concluding that 1342 ACA does obligate the government to make full uh, payment. However, this obligation was suspended by appropriation riders and so on. So I'm afraid risk corridors are done. Uh, other efforts to destabilize risk pools, short-term limited duration, uh, insurance, final rules now out. So we move from the old 90-day max um, to 364 days renewable for three years. These lack essential health benefits. Their insurers can impose annual lifetime, uh, no guaranteed issue protections. So a massive potential negative impact on individual and group uh, risk pools. Um, likely these will suck out the, uh, the relatively young and the, the very healthy, so not something I'm interested in. Secondly, association health plans, AHPs, um, these are going to have a negative impact on individual and group market risk pools because of the way the final rule changes the ERISA definition of employer, uh, which is itself a law review article which I would ask one of you uh, to write. Um, President Trump announced in June 27th at a rally in Fargo, North Dakota, that millions and millions of people are signing up for AHPs. Uh, this, of course, was fake news because they're not on the market until September the 1st. But who's <laughs> counting? <laughs> AHPs are under challenge. There's the New York against Department of Labor case that's been filed 11 states and D.C. suing the uh, Trump administration basically uh, for increasing the risk of fraud and messing with uh, insurance pools and so on. Lots of states, particularly the blue ones, no big surprise, are extremely skeptical about the legality of AHPs. There's a brilliant letter on August the 2nd from the uh, Pennsylvania Insurance Commissioner to the Department of Labor and HHS saying how she's going to uh, exercise vigorous oversight. And as you read through the letter, it's not vigorous oversight she's talking about. It's when hell freezes over. These are going to be allowed in Pennsylvania. The latest projections are that AHPs may not be a big deal, that there'll be thousands, not millions of people, because NFIB, uh, the voice of small business, that actually seems to represent big business, um, has announced that they've abandoned plans to start AHBs because they can't work out what the regulations mean. EHBs, there's some tweaking here uh, with a final rule in uh, April, uh, which allows some states, if they want to, to do more picking and choosing on, on EHBs, also increases the out-of-pocket maximum, some stuff on that. But overall, if you look at where things are going, we're actually seeing, again, this is a following up on my original comment about some sort of stabilization and normalization of the individual group market, we are seeing definite increases in multiple insurance companies in a lot more counties. So um, 
Praise the Lord, as they would say down in Texas. So on to repairing the stool and a bit more, sort of one state at a time. First of all, the individual mandate. Can you, uh, can you put uh, that leg back in the stool? Well, Massachusetts, of course, uh, had it a long time ago with Romney Care. So they already have the individual mandate. Uh, New Jersey's kicks in in 2019, Vermont in 2020. Uh, if you were following the Washington, D.C. budget bill, and let's face it, who in this room wasn't, uh, you would have seen that uh, D.C. introduced uh, resources to handle that individual mandate for Washington, D.C. in their budget. Uh, Gary Palmer and Keith Roftus uh, introduced appropriation riders in the House to kill that, uh, and that passes out of the House. Ted Cruz introduces uh, companion legislation in the Senate, and that gets quashed. So it looks like D.C. will indeed have an individual mandate. It failed in Maryland, Hawaii, and Connecticut last year, but they're all being rejigged, and they'll be reintroduced, and we would expect them. What I would ask you to do is follow the money here. What are these individual mandate provisions doing that may be different from uh, the original ACA individual mandate? And I think two things that are kind of interesting that, that take it away, but hopefully politically, from the it's a tax rhetoric, all right? Because sort of the Maryland program, for example, the idea is that it'll be a down payment on your premium. So it's not lost money. So if you come to your senses, in quotes, depending upon your ideological, what's it, and you say, yeah, oh yeah, I forgot. Well, that money is already there as a down payment on the premium for your individual market policy or something like that. Other states are putting the money into pool stabilization mechanisms. So I think that's kind of interesting just to watch in the background. Guaranteed issue, no medical underwriting. It's a classic all over a uh, blue-red map as to who has uh, guaranteed issue, no, no medical underwriting rules already on the book. And these date back way before the ACA, uh, New York, uh, 1992, New Jersey, I think, 95 or something like that. Uh, so these are uh, well-respected. Uh, what about benefits? Where are we going there? EHBs. To counter federal rollbacks of essential health benefits, we're seeing two things in the states. First, uh, states are codifying EHBs. All right, so actually in New York, in Hawaii, some regs coming out in New York, uh, proposals in Rhode Island and Nevada will actually say that for insurance policies in our state to be issued, they must have these 10 EHBs and they'll just copy them over from the, um, uh, the ACA. The other thing is to codify the benchmark, which is a little more subtle, and that's what that April final rule tried to do, which is to sort of start to mess with the benchmark planning, benchmarking of these plans. Um, and here what you do is uh, actually codify the benchmark, all right? So, it not, so it's not just the EHBs, but what are in each of those EHBs. Because at the moment, the contents of the EHBs are determined on a state-by-state -state basis on a state ba benchmark plan. So another way you could destroy EHBs would be destroy the or to mess with the benchmark plan. So those are the two things you're seeing in the states on EHBs. Contraceptive coverage, as you know, uh, 1027 interim final rules uh, now extend the church's religious organization exemption to sincerely held religious objections and for certain non-governmental employers uh, to non-profit organizations who have moral convictions. Why was this an interim final rule? we all ask. 
because it didn't seem to be an emergency. Uh, it seemed uh, very thin. I think Nick Bagley, Bagley in an incidental economist uh, blog pointed out that there seemed no justification for using an interim final rule here and uh, likely the idea was to just have that out there and while everyone went crazy filing lawsuits to actually build the final rule in the background or something like that oh oh administrative law we love you california washington uh, state massachusetts the aclu and others have filed various sort of first amendment and fifth amendment challenges to that some states are putting in their own state contraceptive mandates uh, the new york department of insurance has already issued one Oregon's Reproductive Health Equity Act goes way beyond contraception, obviously includes um, abortion and uh, other services there. Hobby Lobby and Zubik refuse to die. Don't forget to tell your students this coming semester. And it's all because of Notre Dame. Uh, in 2013, they sued the administration claiming houses of worship exemption. Seventh Circuit rules against them. Yay, my circuit. Uh, October 2017, we have the Zubik settlement resolving about 70 cases. So in November 2017, Notre Dame says, okay, contraception is good. You can all have it, starving students. Uh, then in February 2018, they reverse that and they only allow some forms, some forms of contraception stay way away from the abortifacents uh, and also anything gray. And uh, now we have another suit filed, Americans United for Separation of Church and State the National Women's Law Center and Center for Reproductive Rights filing suit on behalf of Notre Dame students. So Hobby Lobby and Zubik will still be part of your curriculum. Skimpy plans. Don't we love those skimpy plans? <laughs> Idaho. Idaho clearly. Oh, Idaho. Um, their proposal would essentially waive all ACA plans. Uh, Nick Bagley's wonderful tweet that it was, quote, crazy pants illegal. The CMS sort of agreed uh, with Seema Verma proposing that Idaho pursue other avenues to find ways to offer more affordable health insurance plans, including through the use of short duration plans. Iowa's trying to launder it through uh, the Iowa Farm Bureau to try and get something. And of course, we're getting bans on skimpy plans from New Jersey, DC, California, Illinois, Washington are joining in. There's a lovely letter from, uh, I don't know why I love letters from insurance commissioners, but I guess it's my life. There's a lovely letter from the uh, New Jersey insurance commissioner to CMS in April 23rd, 2018, which again was when hell freezes over you can have these in my state market stabilization tricky alaska uh, minnesota it's a bit of a trend we're seeing wisconsin maine iowa oklahoma new, new hampshire oregon there are two parts to this one the actual market stabilization plan they're putting into place and secondly the other piece to watch is the th the 1332 not Professor Huberfeld's favorite 1115s, but 1332 waiver applications to actually get the federal government to pay for some of these some of this reinsurance, um, essentially by by showing that it will lessen the the tax credits, I guess, that will be payable because you will have a reduction in those. So there's something of a, of a trend there to watch. I've been talking about state law, state laws coming in. So yeah, right? I mean, once, once if that happens and the ERISA preemption stays, we're going to have to run all of this 
through the ERISA um, uh, uh, machine. You put the things in, you pull a, bag, a ball out, and you hope. You know, we'd, we'd, we'd thought that maybe it had gone away, and then we had Gobey, and it's, there's clearly a majority in the Supreme Court uh, in favor of a fairly conservative, strict interpretation of ERISA and so forth. For ASO-only plans, we're going to have uh, potential uh, ERISA issues. And finally... Uh, Okay, we're going to have state laws and we're going to have some sort of stabilization, but we're going to have a Two Americas map based upon those state laws. And it might be a map that you can overlay the abortion map on top of and various other maps. But it means we're going to have a very difficult sort of environment. Uh, and I thank you very much for your attention. And that was the week in health law. A big thank you to uh, Professors Huberfeld, Bach, and Bard for joining me. You can find Professor Huberfeld on Twitter at nhuberfeld1, and Jennifer Bard is at profbardlaw. The panel was great fun. We hope that you enjoy it. Uh, recall that the show notes are at tour.com, where you can f- download our slide sets. I'm Nicholas Terry. That's N-I-C-O-L-A-S-T-E-R-R-Y on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week.